Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu. One rape is one too many. One assault is one too many. One aggressive act of harassment is one too many. One person denied due process is one too many. This conversation may be uncomfortable, but we must have it. It is our moral obligation to get this right. That was Education Secretary Betsy DeVos uh, announcing last week her administration will rewrite policies on campus sexual misconduct in an effort to protect both victims and the accused. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg along with Joe Wren from WFIU and WTIU. DeVos made clear in her statements that she believes procedures set forth by the Obama administration have sometimes deprived accused students of due process. Though she did not give details on proposed changes, the National Women's Law Center has called DeVos's plan a blunt attack on survivors of sexual assault. Others think that she's moving in the right direction. So that's our topic this week on Noon Edition. We have two guests with us in the studio. Mari Irvine is Director of Campus Initiatives for the Indiana Coalition to End Sexual Assault. And Amelia Lawn is here. She's an attorney at Lawn Law, LLC, in Bloomington. And she um, also represents respondents of sexual assault accusations in court and on campus. I also, also should say that Mari Irvine is an adjunct faculty member at American University in Washington, D.C. So if you have questions or comments, please join us at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also email us uh, questions at news at indianapublicmedia.org and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Well, welcome to both of you. Thanks for being here. And uh, Amelia, I know your voice. I hope it uh, will hold out today. You've been, you, you sound a little scratchy. I'll do what I can. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to ask both of you just to, to start with your perspective on um, what Betsy DeVos um, said last week in her speech. And I want to start with Mari. Uh, sure. Uh, thank you, Bob, so much, Joe and Amelia. It's really a pleasure to get to have um, what I hope is going to be a really productive conversation with among us, as well as everybody who's interested in calling in or just listening quietly today. Um, so I would start off very broadly. Um, I was uh, particularly concerned about many uh, aspects of Betsy DeVos's speech, in particular because she is um, an authoritative leader in our country now in terms of issues related to education um, and gender and inequalities and violence on campuses. And so my overall response is, and I'll get into more details later, but um, one immediate um, uh, thing that I found very troubling um, about her speech is that it was primarily actually fully based on anecdotal stories related to uh, both reported victims and reported perpetrators. And so she really didn't cite any statistics, any data from research studies, nothing like that. So it was all very anecdotal. And many of those anecdotes also seemed to be cherry picked. So they were sort of the outlier cases, the very sort of bizarre um, sort of crazy and wild sounding stories that would really sort of upset anybody who would be listening in. So she wasn't really going with the more mainstream types of cases. Um, another thing that really concerned me is that she seemed to be um, both implying and then also explicitly conflating criminal investigations and responses with campus investigations and responses. And it's really crucial for everyone listening today to understand there are major distinctions between campus investigations and criminal investigations. Um, thirdly, I would say that um, I was really concerned with a few points she made, um, especially about reported perpetrators um, that were, frankly, um, a bit irresponsible and, and tended to be um, producing misinformation that, again, the general public listening to her speech wouldn't know about. Um, and then fourthly, she was definitely 
portraying reported perpetrators in a way that um, could be construed as being really, really sympathetic to their cases. And um, as someone who has um, worked in the movement to end men's violence against women for the past 16 years, I'm currently writing a book on rape culture. I would say that that's a real common characteristic of a rape culture is to portray uh, reported perpetrators in a way that's very, very sympathetic and not really based on research and what we know about them. Before I go to Amelia, I want to ask you about number three, Mm -hmm. talk about misrepresentations. Mm -hmm. Can you give us an example? Sure. One thing that immediately comes to mind is, um, and again, this was based on her anecdotes, and she kept referring back to a particular anecdote about um, a a man, a college student who uh, went through an investigation. He was accused of sexual misconduct. And then um, it sounds like his mother walked in on him trying to commit suicide, which obviously would be an incredibly distressing situation for any mother as well as for that man. But throughout her speech, she kept referring back to that. And I think the insinuation and the message that a lot of her listeners would take away from that is that that we maybe have a lot of re- accused students, reported perpetrators who are out there trying to commit suicide. And I think it's really important for folks to know that that's just simply not the case. But the flip side is true. What we do know from research, from shelters, crisis centers, law enforcement, hospitals, national research centers, is that victims of sexual violence and intimate partner violence are actually at much more risk than the general population for attempting suicide or completing suicide because they've gone through an incredibly traumatic event. Whereas perpetrators... We, we really don't have much information, but they're certainly not at high risk of suicide, as she implied. Okay. Thank you. Amelia? Um, thank you. <clears throat> the thing that was most important to me about what Betsy said is that the era of rule by letter is over, and that might have only stuck out to the lawyers, but there's a process that we are supposed to go through to have a rule be promulgated, and that involves a notice and comment period. And the Dear Colleague letter did not have to go through that process because it's just a letter. Um, And yet the letter ended up having the same teeth of a regulation and had universities scared of losing their federal funding if they didn't comply with this Dear Colleague letter that didn't go through the normal hoops that a regulation has to go through. Um, And I think that whether you um, work with survivors or respondents, you can agree that nothing is perfect the way it is with the way that Title IX is implemented in universities. And uh, um, one thing that is indicative of that is the fact that um, the number of lawsuits based on Title IX um, before the Dear Colleague letter, there were 15 from 1990 to 2011. And then from 2011 to now, there have been at least 150 um, as of earlier this spring. And I think, and those are from both the accused and um, from the complainants. And I'm going to, I should stop myself and say I use a lot of different language. Mm-hmm. Complainants um, or survivors would mean the person who's bringing the claim and saying, I was assaulted or I was harmed. Mm-hmm. And um, respondent means the person who is being accused. So mm-hmm. I, I use those words in all That's different okay. ways. Yeah. Um, so I think that the number of lawsuits coming from both sides is indicative of the fact that we're not doing things as well as we could be or should be. Um, and then I would mention touching on what Mari said about being sympathetic to perpetrators is um, something that bothered me in the aftermath of DeVos's speech is people on social media um, and real media talking about rapists and why are we treating rapists so well. Mari didn't use that language, but that's what I um, saw a lot online. Um, These um, men have not been adjudicated as anything when they're just accused, whether it's perpetrator or rapist. Um, so I don't see why they shouldn't be treated sympathetically when they haven't even been found responsible for something yet. For all we know, they will go on to be found innocent of what they're being accused of. Um, and I've seen many heartbreaking um, outcomes where, in one case, for example, a member of the Office of Student Conduct did come to me concerned that my client was, was suicidal because of the result of his hearing. So that's obviously just anecdotal. I don't know about widespread, but um, that shows me uh, that that is something that does happen and is something that I'm concerned about because these are young men I'm working with every day. Mm-hmm. Let me give our phone numbers again, 812-855-0811, toll free. Uh, our toll free number is 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. This is a, uh, a 
a really um, interesting mm-hmm. and controversial topic in some some ways, Joe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I, I guess I'm wondering what's the the purpose behind DeVos right now. What what why is this coming out, and what's the message she's trying to get out with this? In your opinion, in your mind, either one of you. Well, obviously, we are just guessing. Um, since right. We don't know what's in her mind, but right. um, you know, the end result of her statements. One reason I'm not sure why they were so inflammatory is she didn't state any new rules that would be um, put through the rulemaking process or she didn't state any new policies that would be made. She simply said, hey, look, we're going to put this through the process. The Dear Colleague letter should have been put through in the first place. And that opens it up to a notice and comment period, which means members of the public, including lobbying groups on both sides, can let their voices be heard, which I think is especially valuable now that we've seen we, it's been in action since 2011. So people can really speak to how they've seen it in action on both sides. Um, so that's all she said she was going to do is open it up to public comment. Um, yeah, I wouldn't be able to guess what's going on in her mind or in the minds of the folks who are advising her. But um, I, I do know that after over the past few months, you know, she has met with a variety of groups and individuals uh, around the country. Um, in particular, she has met with some survivor advocacy groups, but she's also met with quite a few groups um, that are made up of defense attorneys and um, different organizations who are defending the, the rights of accused students, the respondents. Um, and one thing that really stuck out to me that she she really spent a great deal of time on in her speech was um, about possibly you know suggesting that we needed to change the level of evidence required in campus cases to find a respondent responsible or not responsible. So not guilty or innocent, but responsible of violating a student conduct code or not responsible for violating that student conduct code. And I wanted to give a quick shout out to um, a relatively new national organization called CAPA, Campus Advocacy and Prevention Professionals Association. And that's made up of over, I believe, 500 different campus professionals working at universities and colleges all over the country. And just yesterday, they released a position statement on implementation of Title IX policies. And um, within their position statement, they noted that they are concerned that perhaps this push to abandon the preponderance of evidence standard and instead move forward into the reasonable doubt standard that this is, and I quote, it may be designed to limit the likelihood of any student being found responsible for sexual misconduct via campus disciplinary and Title IX processes, end quote. And they go on to explain that it's really important for schools to safeguard educational civil rights for students. And since they're not going through a criminal investigation, they don't have access to things like um, criminal discovery process, crime lab subpoenas, things like that. So they conclude this section by saying, uh, quote, If it is impossible to meet the clear and convincing standard with the investigative tools and structures available, it renders the policies, accountability, and remedies of a civil rights process functionally meaningless, end quote. And so that's something that, well, I don't know what's going through Betsy DeVos's mind. That seemed to be something she was really focusing a lot on was um, sort of implying that we need to change the the standard of evidence in this country. So I do think that's really been a push because there's been all this talk about um, schools disrespecting the, the um, due process rights for the accused students. So, for, so let me try to um, decipher this in non-lawyer speak. Uh, so preponderance of the evidence means it's more likely than not, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's used in civil cases. And uh, the beyond a reasonable doubt is sort of speaks for itself, and it's used in criminal cases. In what's been going on now, um, the the law as as or the by by letter, whatever the the Obama administration, um, universities have been using the preponderance of the evidence, or it's more likely than not. Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. Why should there be different standards for the for the the in the law versus mm-hmm. in in a, a student adjudication process and what would, I mean, what will happen if, if by the preponderance of the evidence a student is found to have been responsible, what, what happens to that student? Do you know? Well, to answer the, the last the part of your question first, there, yeah. um, they will then be sanctioned, um, which they call, they develop an action plan is what they call it. Um, and if there's a full-on sexual assault, I 
I call it penetrative sexual assault, um, that starts at suspension. It would not be ever lower than suspension, whether it's for one year or two years. But typically, that would be an expulsion if you're found responsible for that. If we're talking about more of a sexual harassment or um, something a little bit lower than a full sexual assault, that's more could be disciplinary probation or um, suspension. Okay. Yeah, and Bob, that's that's a really great question. I think that's where um, there's there's been a lot of debate and arguments um, between different groups representing different types of students. But um, from from my own professional um, perspective, which has really been guided by talking with hundreds of, of different campus professionals and administrators, as well as law enforcement professionals across the country. Um, there's such a big difference between a campus investigation and a criminal investigation. And a lot of that has to do not just with the processes, but with the ultimate consequence. So as Amelia explained, um, you know, a student who is found responsible for violating that student conduct code may be suspended or expelled. So that is literally the absolute worst thing that can happen to a respondent in a campus investigation is that he or she is expelled from the university. And I have a great colleague at IUPUI who describes that as saying, basically, at this point, the college or university has said, we have found enough evidence to decide that you have violated the code and you violated our values as an institution. So we are saying you need to leave and not come back. So that's the that's the worst thing that can happen. And so um, having this lower standard of evidence then seems it seems fair because it's a lower standard of evidence, but the consequences are lower. Whereas with a criminal investigation, um, in this country, if somebody is found guilty of a sex crime and convicted, they could go to prison for many years. They might actually go to prison for life. In extreme cases, they could be issued the death penalty and actually lose their life, although that doesn't happen a whole lot in this country for uh, rape and other sex crimes. And they could also become um, a lifetime uh, listed on the lifetime sex offender registry, whereas in a campus investigation, that's definitely not going to happen. So it definitely makes sense for a criminal investigation we really want to have, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt. We really want to say we have a ton of evidence here because the consequences are incredibly severe for this person. Um, I want to jump in. Um, so I want to touch on some. I want everyone to listening and everyone here to think about all the applications you filled out in your life, whether to college, law school, med school, all the jobs you've applied for, whether it's at McDonald's all the way up to, you know, where you work right now. Um, think about the questions that they ask on there. This punishment does follow that student around for life, and it does irreparably harm them for the rest of their lives. And if they actually did commit that act, then no one's going to feel too sympathetic for that person, I don't think. But I think that it brings me back to the jurist Blackstone is the one who said the law holds it better that 10 guilty persons escape, then that one innocent party suffer. And that's what I come back to, that the plight of my clients that I've sat with and cried with and held their hands and cried with their moms, you know, that they did not do anything wrong and now are going to spend the rest of their lives having to fill out a form. Yes, I was expelled from college for sexual assault. That really is a, a death sentence for their careers and, and their lives in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So do we have any type of statistic or know how often that actually happens? I don't know that there would be any way to There's tell that. There's no way that. to tell that, is I mean, because yeah. I'll, I'll think someone's innocent, right. but where am I right. to report that? Right. I, I would um, you know, respond to that, that certainly if a student was expelled for violating his or her student conduct um, policy or code because he or she committed an act of sexual assault or, or domestic violence or stalking or other type of violent crime. Um, if that person was actually required to go out and tell everyone why they were expelled from that school, then they might have a, you know, a harder time getting a job going to another school. But right now, there are no laws or, or institutional policies in place that require someone um, like registrar's office to make a specific notation on the transcript. So some schools have chosen to make a specific notation. But if that student wants to apply to another school and go there, Again, this they're not listed as a sex offender. There's no criminal conviction. So it's simply a little notation that he or she was expelled or was suspended. And, you know, in terms of job applications and things like that, 
um, they might, you know, have to say, oh, yeah, I, I did have to leave this school, but they're they're not being really forced or obligated by most companies, most employers to explain why they were expelled. So for the most part, when people are expelled or suspended, they can keep that quiet unless they choose to go to the media or start telling everyone. But don't you think there's a follow up question to the answer? Yes, I was expelled from my institution. They're not like, oh, OK. Come on in. I I think it it totally depends. Um, I think it would depend on the employer, on the institution. um, And uh, they, you know, they may be lying if if they're asked that follow up question. And there's not necessarily anything in place where then they can call up the institution and say, why was this person expelled? Um, And also, even if there's a notation on the transcript that says they were expelled for violating the student conduct code, that could have been for plagiarism. That could have been for uh, bringing alcohol onto campus and it was a dry campus. Um, That could have been for a variety of other uh, violations of the conduct code and not necessarily sexual violence. Except I think everyone understands you don't get expelled for plagiarism or having a beer at a tailgate. If you plagiarize enough times, there are schools that will suspend or expel you. Can can I ask uh, about from, Amelia, from your um, experience with this? So, um, what happens to these records? So if a student is found responsible or found, what would it be? We not call it responsible, yeah. Right, or not responsible. I mean, if a student is found responsible, is that record available to someone who would request it? That- so the way it works at IU is um, those are confidential. Mm-hmm. The only reason it would be released is if you gave your written permission. So, um, for example, think about, again, applying to, like, for example, when I applied to law school, that's an example I used. I had to sign off on the law school contacting my undergrad institution, which was IU, to see my student conduct record. Um, So you don't have to sign off on them seeing it, but then you don't get to go to that school either. Um, And those records, if you get anything below a suspension, that stays in the Office of Student Ethics for five years after you either leave IU or graduate. Um, but if it's suspension or higher, that's on your permanent record, so it'll be there the rest of your life. Okay. So there are campus administrators that are making these decisions, responsible, not responsible? So the way that – I'm sorry. And, and then and then I guess the follow-up would be how well-trained are they? So the way that works is um, they convene a panel, it's called, and it has um, three people on it, and they're faculty or staff from around IU, and um, – they undergo a training that's conducted here at IU, at least at last I knew. Um, and actually, one fault I find with the system is I don't think it's very widely publicized to faculty and staff that they can be on these panels. In fact, um, trying to answer that question, knowing we were going to be talking today, I Googled it, and I looked extensively on IU's um, sexual assault um, websites, and I couldn't find anywhere where if you're a faculty or staff interested in being trained, um, you could sign up for those trainings or who to contact. I mean, I guess you could... You could always reach out to the Title IX coordinator if you wanted to, but there's no just form online or flyer about it or anything. Um, So anyway, so they convene with those three people, and they could be from any walk of life. Like I've had interior decorator professor, business professor, education professor, um, or like I said, staff, like people who work in the dorms, for example, like someone who's a conduct person in a dorm. Um, And last I knew, you had to go undergo, um, like, three to four days of training, something like that, spread out over a month, so maybe like six hours at a time, something like that, um, trained by members of the Office of Student Conduct. And I would, I'd like to jump in and yeah. say, um, so Amelia did a great job, you know, ex- explaining the, the IU system process. Um, but the way that investigations are carried out and who's carrying out the investigations and how adjudications are decided is actually wholly dependent on each particular unique institution. So you could have um, colleges and universities that are following a variety of different models. So there is the, the hearing um, panel model. There is something known as the single investigator model, where the investigator does the entire investigation, finds, uh, fi- determines whether the student was responsible or not responsible, um, talks with colleagues and, and determines adjudications. Um, there's a hybrid model where you have an investigator doing the model, then talking with um, with sort of like a, a hearing board to then determine the, um, the the consequences. So it's it's really all over the place. And that's something I think like as a country nationally, um, we, we could use more guidance on. And there is um, a great national organization that I'm not at liberty to say right now, but they're in the process of um, writing um, 
uh, recommended standards for this. And so they're they're going to be releasing that document, hopefully by the end of the year, recommending a certain type of, of model to follow for investigation. So it really, it really depends on the school, how they're mm-hmm. doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. All right. We're going to have to take a short break. You're listening to Noon Edition, and we're talking with Mari Irvine. Director of Campus Initiatives for the Indiana Coalition to End Sexual Assault, and Amelia Lawn, an attorney at Lawn Law LLC in Bloomington. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from the Herald Times along with Joe Wren from WFIU and WTIU. And we're talking about the uh, announcement last week from Education Secretary Betsy DeVos that her administration will rewrite policies on campus sexual misconduct in an effort to protect both victims and the accused. We have two guests with us in the studio, Mari Irvine, Director of Campus Initiatives for the Indiana Coalition to End Sexual Assault, and Amelia Lawn, who's an attorney at Lawn Law LLC in Bloomington. She represents respondents of sexual assault accusations in court and on campus. We actually invited people from IU to join us. Um, Indiana University's Title IX deputy coordinators declined the invitation. IU says they remain committed to addressing sexual violence within our communities and will continue to provide support and resources to those who need it. They issued a statement, and here's a a short excerpt. In light of the September 7th announcement by the Department of Education, we will continue to monitor the Department of Education's actions and communications and assess our existing policies and procedures to ensure our continued compliance with applicable laws and regulations. We also expect to participate in the formal rulemaking process to assure protection for victims and fairness to all. The full statement can be seen on the Noon Edition webpage. Um, so if you want to join us, I'll give you some phone numbers, 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also email us questions at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition Joe. All right, well, just to kind of follow off uh, what we did right before the break, um, we were talking about the hearing panels and how they're trained, and they're trained differently and can be different at very different u- at the different universities. So is that part of maybe what's what's broken? Um, yeah, a, a big with this system just in general, and you, I'll just let you kind of go off. Sure, a, yeah. a big focus of DeVos's speech um, last week was that she was continually referencing a, a broken system, and that's something that critics have have talked about. Um, but in to respond real quickly in terms of the training that's required of anyone doing a campus investigation is the the Title IX guidance and interpretation through the form of the Dear Colleague letters and the and the Q and A documents released by the Office for Civil Rights specifically says that invest, these investigators need to receive uh, training on a consistent basis. So if schools are um, complying with that guidance, then they are making sure that anyone involved in the investigations process is going to be receiving um, good quality training on a consistent basis. But again, that, you know, some schools might be falling short of that. Um, so that that's definitely um, an area of, of growth for some schools. Okay, <laughs> I, I want to I want to follow up too with a, with a question. This is a, I'm going to step back. This is really a broad 
kind of a broad question, but Mari, you mentioned you know the rape culture. Um, there's a, I think people talk a lot about a sexual assault or rape culture on campus. We had a show about it two weeks ago after um, something happened with one of the local bars in town and some signage they had and things of that nature. Um, and we know there's a, a huge alcohol um, culture on campus as well, and that leads to sexual assault, and it also leads to all sorts of uh, you know different levels of sexual assault, misunderstandings and whatnot. I guess I, I don't know if I should use that word or not, but no. perhaps no, I should not use that <laughs> word. It it, uh, it it results in um, very difficult situations that that Amelia goes into court with and that you see all the time. What would be a proper standard? What would be a proper um, law? I mean, is it somewhere between the preponderance of the evidence and the the legal standard, or should it be the legal standard? Should it be preponderance of the evidence? I mean, is is that in? Are you asking in specific alcohol facilitated I'm, I'm, I'm sexual act, assault cases? Yeah, and for and on campus. I mean, campus is really dealing with this issue of sexual assault, and I think that I'm I'm I don't know what was in Obama's uh, mind either, but I'm assuming that his letter was trying to. Um, trying to help the situation, help universities, and deal with this issue? Well, I mean, I would say in terms of alcohol-facilitated and drug-facilitated sexual assaults, um, those perpetrators um, are committing those assaults on campus and off campus. Um, So if they're being committed off campus, somebody's option is to they're, they're really their only option is to go um, report to the police and pursue a criminal investigation if, if, if they're seeking you know their version of justice. Um, but the campus investigations, what's so great about those and what I think a lot of people value is that this is a, a civil rights option for a student who feels that he or she has been victimized to pursue. So they have, as a student, they have an additional option. They always have the option of pursuing a criminal investigation, which as hopefully someone will explain to them or they already know, requires this really high level of evidence. Whereas on the campus, because it's it's a civil rights investigation, essentially, um, we're using a lower standard of evidence. So, you know, in my mind, the the presence, the, the use of alcohol or another type of drug by the perpetrator should, should not affect the level of evidence or the type of investigation being used at all. But I do think that that's an example of training that campus investigators and as well as hearing board models uh, members should really understand. And we have lots of great research out there in terms of how perpetrators, especially the serial offenders, often are very smart, strategic. Um, they target certain victims who might have low self-esteem or who are engaging in risky behaviors like like engaging in binge drinking and things like that. So that's something in terms of evidence-based training, that's something I'm always encouraging people to do is to really um, read up on the research or attend trainings by experts who can explain that type of research. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to um, correct something that you said um, specific to IU. Maybe I don't know how other universities do it, but um, a student at IU is accountable for the code no matter where they are. So mm-hmm. even if an assault takes place off campus, that can go through the Title IX process. You don't have to only go through the police. Like a student could be in Prague and do something wrong and still have to come back and face the music at IU. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I meant for somebody who is who has been victimized that they have they have options on campus as well as off campus. Off campus, they would go through the the criminal system. I see. Mm-hmm. Is there? I I guess I'm um, trying to understand. Are there times where those would crisscross? Like, I feel like if you're in some type of situation on campus, is there a point that it moves itself to the criminal yeah, side? They, um, they and can, does that happen often? Um, it doesn't happen often because the it typically in cases that go through the Title IX process, there's such a lack of evidence the prosecutors won't even, even touch mm. it. Um, but when they, those do happen, I mean. And I don't want to disparage the Monroe County Prosecutor's Office. They would support and help anybody who came to them to ask for help if they were assaulted. But uh, I just mean moving forward with charges. Um, But I'm sorry, what did you just (laughs) Just how often and why would it Yeah, so we do um, often help someone who's going both through the criminal system and through the IU system. They move at very different paces and in very different ways. Um, The um, legal system often takes two to three, four times as long as the IU system would take. Um, And like uh, Mari touched on earlier, the 
um, discovery is the process by which you would get the information that the other party wants to use against you or use as evidence. There, those, that's much different in the legal system versus the IU system. Um, one thing I want to make sure everyone's aware of is at IU, the way that the system is right now since August of last year, um, you don't even know what you're being accused of until almost the very end of the process. Like they'll write you a letter and say you need to come in. You, um, you know, you've been accused of something serious, but they don't say what it is. And eventually, you can learn it's against a certain person because they put a no contact order in place, meaning on campus you can't have any contact with that person, um, or I guess anywhere as long as you're a student, you can't contact that person, even by third parties. Um, so they have a meeting with you to explain that to you. Um, but until the investigation is complete. You can't see all the evidence that they have against you or the statement that the accuser has made. You don't have a clue what's happening. So especially in cases which often comes up between a boyfriend and girlfriend or romantic partners, let's say you've been intimate with that person dozens of times or hundreds of times, you don't even know which of the times they're calling into question. And I think that's one of the most um, dangerous and scary parts of the process. Is that similar, Mari? Do you know it at other institutions? I, I think it, it really just depends, it just depends. On, on the institution and the, and yeah. the processes they've, they've chosen. Um, I would say, based on my experiences working with a variety of, of IU administrators, um, they do try to make the, the process as transparent as possible. Um, but of course, when they are doing an investigation, um, they obviously can't just freely share all the information with all parties involved because that might hinder the actual investigation itself. Um, I wanted to go back to your question about, um, you know, is there a lot of crossover between campus and criminal investigations? and um, the the reality is is in the United States because of these these various aspects of rape culture, a lot of survivors have many different reasons for not wanting to report to the police. Um, so some some of them are afraid of the police. They're you know they're afraid of law enforcement for a variety of reasons, um, or they. Uh, they're scared of going through those legal proceedings because sometimes a, a criminal investigation and then the, the court processes can actually take years. And by that time, the, the person who feels victimized is like, I just want to move on with my life. Whereas the campus investigations, there's actually in the Title IX guidance, there's this requirement. Schools are supposed to do this whole investigation in just 60 days, which is actually kind of too short. You know, a lot of administrators feel very stressed by trying to get that done so quickly. But um, so a lot of students though, will opt for that campus investigation um, because they don't, you know, and a lot of victims, um, they act, most of them know the people who, who assaulted them, and so they don't necessarily want that person to go to prison. So they actually still have a lot of care and concern for the person. And so they say, I will opt for a campus investigation because you know, to me, this is my idea of justice or I want to feel safe on campus. So I want the school to do something to get me that no contact order. But they don't necessarily want to send that person to prison. So I think that's one reason why we have a ton of campus investigations. But those the same number of people are not going over to the police and, and saying they want, uh, you know, to get involved in the legal process as well. Um, but definitely campus and criminal investigations are entirely separate. Um, and so the campus is required to do an investigation, even whether or not the police are doing their own investigation. Okay. Um, I will say, just to touch on the last thing you said, is um, I've had many of my Title IX cases, the complainant did go to the police, but still respectfully to what you just said, but and the police would not move forward or the prosecutors would not move forward. So kind of belying what you said, they did want it to go forward mm -hmm. with the criminal case. But there's just no evidence. Can one and of you, I, oh, sorry, and I also want to touch on the 60-day requirement. Mm -hmm. I've never had a case at IU last 60 days or less. It's always much, 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 much longer. Mm -hmm. Like I've had cases that started in September. They don't have a hearing till February. Mm -hmm. And the 60 days is supposed to even encompass the appeals period as well. So they're so far off. And that's not IU's fault necessarily. That's the problem with the Dear Colleague letter. How can we do, as Mari noted, it's so short. How can we do a thorough investigation in 60 days? I don't see how that'd be possible. One of you mentioned, I mean, Title IX is sort of at the root of this. Can I think most people think of Title IX in terms of, you know, women's athletics. So how, can one of you explain just why Title IX is part of this? Discussion. Well, it was in 1977, five years after Title IX was um, put into action, that women at Yale sued the university because they said they were being harassed by professors and staff and not were not able to 
um, get uh, help for that. Um, so that's when it kind of first started being used in that way, but it still wasn't used commonly in that way until more like in the 90s. That's when it kind of picked up. Okay. Yeah, and essentially, I mean, the Title IX Amendment of 1972 is, is basically it's one long run-on sentence, um, and it's basically saying that anyone uh, who who is a student um, attending an institution, an educational program or activity that gets uh, federal financial aid in one way or another, deserves to be able to go to that school and not be discriminated against um, or denied access to education because of their sex. Mm-hmm. So Title IX itself is very simple, and then. Um, um, starting in the the 70s and then also starting in the 1990s, we started having these Dear Colleague letters be issued. So the Dear Colleague letters actually started being issued by OCR long before the Obama administration. And so I think for some people who might, you know, they're not well educated on this. And so they're sort of maybe they don't like the Obama administration. So they sort of see this as a way, you know, to complain about it. It is important to know that these this guidance was being issued long before Obama and Biden. Um, I also just wanted to note that um, Title IX was proposed and um, followed through by our, our own Birch Bay, a Hoosier. That's right. <laughs> oh. Get Birch Bay in there. All right. Our numbers again, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside the Bloomington area. You can give us a call. We have about 10 or 12 minutes left to go in the program. I want to read a question that has come into us that says, we've been taught to believe people who coming who come forward saying they've been assaulted partly. Uh, and we've been taught to believe people who come forward saying they've been assaulted, assaulted partly in order for them to feel supported and protected. How can you support complainants while at the same time giving due process and a fair hearing to the accused? And I think that is so important because we need to have people who come forward feel supported and protected. But at the same time, if you just automatically believe anybody who comes forward, why even have a hearing at all? And that could be true in criminal court as well. It's like, well, if she's made a complaint, therefore he should go to jail. And I think this is an important time to talk about the difference between a false accusation and an unfounded accusation. Mm-hmm. There's an important statistic that there's only, I think it's like 2% of rape accusations are completely just made up in false accusations. And I think that's true, possibly even lower than that. Um, and in all the work I've done, I've maybe seen one or two cases where I thought it was just completely falsified. But an unfounded accusation is where someone feels traumatized or that they've been through a traumatic experience, but it doesn't meet the standards for sexual assault at their institution or in their state or whatever the jurisdiction is that we're talking about. And that I see on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I totally appreciate Amelia bringing up that point. Um, because like in DeVos's speech, she used the term falsely accused students a number of times. And so coming from an academic standpoint, I really value sort of defining, you know, let's define these terms. And so there's definitely a big difference between someone who truly was falsely accused, which means an investigation, a thorough investigation was done and they actually found evidence or credible witness statements where they, they can say 100 percent for sure this was actually false and made up versus saying we didn't find enough evidence to prove or disprove this one way or another. So I think that is important. Um, and there's um, some really great research out there um, in the, the criminal justice side of things in terms of um, false, false reports of rape. And so the best statistics are about 6 to 7%. Um, However, it's important to know that quite often in those cases, um, an individual perpetrator or group of perpetrators is not ever named. And so often when somebody comes forward and makes a false report to the police, they're doing it because they have serious emotional, psychological, social issues. And it's sort of a help-seeking behavior where they're not actually pointing the finger at anyone. So nobody would actually be in danger of going to prison. They're kind of just talking vaguely vaguely about a stranger in a van or something like that. so in, in terms of the, the caller's question about, you know, how can we be fair to, to all the parties involved, um, I would say going off of those statistics, if we would say, okay, about 6 to 7% might be false, not necessarily pointing the finger at everyone, what we know then is over 90% of reports are true. You know, they are based on facts. And so from that standpoint, we could say it could be an evidence-based um, 
belief system that we do need to, to start by believing. Um, it's also a trauma-informed way of going about things because we've heard numerous stories from complainants and as well as victims off campus that when they came forward, they were immediately shut down or silenced by their institutions, and that ended up re-traumatizing them. Um, I, I do want to give a shout out to um, a great organization called End Violence Against Women International. Um, they have an international campaign called Start by Believing. So if, if your listeners just want to Google that, they can quickly find Ivawi's campaign. And they, um, at their last conference, they actually did a mock trial discussing about how detectives can have that attitude of start by believing. And really what that, that attitude is doing is really just trying to level the playing field because for hundreds of years in this country, we've, we've been immersed in a country where people are more likely to believe the accused rather than the victim. So having an attitude of start by believing basically is just saying the investigator if we want the investigator to do a good investigation, they've got to actually believe that there might have something might have happened because if they just immediately shut down when the victim walks in the room, then they're going to be so inherently biased they're not really going to put effort into doing a good investigation. I think start by believing is so dangerous for an investigator to have that attitude. I think it makes sense for like a support person, a therapist, like someone in the IU Health, they have a, a sexual assault office there to help people who are survivors, the friends, family, those people should all start by believing because whatever happened with that person, they obviously need support for whatever they're feeling and going through. But an investigator should start with a blank mind that either party could equally be right. Or in these cases, since we know alcohol is involved so often that neither party knows what happened and we're trying to piece it together um, using the evidence that we have in witnesses. But if an investigator starts by believing that a sexual assault occurred, how is that fair to the accused? And I just say in response, um, so Ivawi has a filmed mock trial that's now up on their website. So anyone, you know, it's open to the public, anyone who's interested, they can actually go to Ivawi's website. Again, you could just Google start by believing in Ivawi, um, E-V-A-W-I, and they can actually watch um, a discussion about why it is appropriate and okay for investigators to have an attitude of start by believing. It doesn't mean that they're biased in favor, but again, if they want to be doing a good and thorough investigation, if they start from, from you know inherent disbelief of that victim, which we know has so often been the case in this country, it's not very likely they're going to be thinking about you know different ways to get evidence and things like that. Mm-hmm. So um, we just have about three, four minutes left, so maybe to kind of take us out here, what are some of the changes? We've, we've talked about this now for a while. Five minutes, what would you like to see? What changes would you like to see to this system overall? Um, I would love to see campuses not handle sexual assault adjudication at all. Um, an example I use when I'm talking with friends or family is if there was a murder on campus, would you want like a bunch of history professors trying to be the sleuths of who done it? Um, I think that the university is in a unique position to help students in a way that police, law enforcement, prosecutors cannot. They can move the accused student to a different dorm so that the complainant doesn't have to see him every day. They can help people move their class schedule so they don't have to see their accused. They can um, talk to professors and say, hey, can we get an extension on this paper or get a W for this semester? She can't deal with this right now. Um, Police can't do that. The school can help somebody with that and support them through that or put a no contact order in place on campus, for example. But let's leave the adjudicating guilt and innocence to the trained jurists in the system that we've developed over centuries in this in this country. So um, partly in in my response, I'd like to give a huge shout out to the Colorado Coalition Against Sexual Assault. They just recently released um, a few days ago a wonderful one page sheet. Um, explaining the difference between campus investigations um, and criminal investigations, um, showing that Title IX does provide due process. Um, and they make some really great points. Um, and so my, my general response would be not a lot needs to be changed. There are a few things I think campuses should have more than 60 days to conduct the investigations. Um, and then I would say the my major critique of all the guidance is it's just guidance so far, and let's go ahead and, and put that into law, um, especially for the K through 12 schools, because because even if the Title IX guidance gets rescinded, colleges and universities are still going to be legally required to comply with a lot of these same requirements through the Cleary Act. However, K through 12 schools, those students are going to be in a lot more danger if Title IX is rescinded. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that campuses 
campus administrators and investigators are required to have high quality training. And if we think if we look at the legal system, we have juries made up of 12 people who are generally completely 100 percent uneducated about these issues. And we have judges making decisions um, about whether someone goes to prison. And those judges don't even have requirements about being trained on sexual violence or domestic violence, whereas the campus administrators are being required to be well-trained on those issues. Um, and again, you know, campus investigations, those are a civil remedy for students. And so I think you know, we really want to have victimized people to have as many options available to them possible, especially because a lot of victims, as I explained, don't want a criminal investigation. They don't want to send that person to prison. They just want to feel safe on campus. Mari, I'm going to ask you first and, and then Amelia, but uh, in, the, in your time working on this issue, I mean, what kind of changes have you seen? Is, it, is the culture different now than it was when you first started working on this? Yeah, I would say I've seen vast improvements in college and university campuses, not so much in the K through 12 schools. Those have a long way to go. But colleges and universities, we're now at the point in terms of prevention, especially where we have students who have graduated from college and talking about sexual assault and gender inequality is commonplace for them now. So if we're talking about actually progressing our society forward as a whole, now that we have everyone coming out with a college degree, hopefully, has at least been forced to talk about gender inequality and violence a little bit. That's a that is a tremendous step forward for us as a nation. So I'd say overall, we've I've seen really positive results. One minute, Amelia, from your time as a student and working with this, working on campus to now. Well, <clears throat> I've been doing this as an attorney since 2014, and I would say the thing I've noticed is people as a society have noticed how unfair this system is. And I think before we were almost un we were afraid to talk openly about doubting the system because, in the words of Laura Kipnis, "What are you pro rape or something?" And if I would try to talk about it, my husband would say, "Shh, we're at a party. No one wants to hear about this." You know, <laughs> but um, now it's becoming more and more of an open topic where people, even you know, fellow um, fellow Democrat liberals, will say. Yeah, what about this system? It really doesn't seem fair, and why should people have to go through something so unfair as this? Okay, we're out of time. I want to thank both of our guests, Mari Irvine and Amelia Lon. Thanks for being here today. And for our producer, Angela Batista, engineer Mike Pashkash, and Joe Wren, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu.